Chapter 25 of The Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, Completing the Autobiography of a Seaman, Volume 2, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. 1833 to 1848. Zealously as the Earl of Dundonald strove through nearly twenty years to perfect and make generally useful his inventions in connection with steam shipping, he attached yet greater importance to another and older invention or discovery which, though its efficiency has been admitted by all to whom it has been explained, has never yet been adopted. This was the device known as his secret war plans for capturing the fleets and forts of an enemy by an altogether novel process attended by little cost or risk to the assailant but of terrible effect upon the objects attacked these plans were conceived by him in eighteen eleven and in the following year as he has told in his autobiography he submitted them to the prince regent afterwards king george the fourth by the prince they were referred to a secret committee consisting of the duke of york as president lord keith lord exmouth and the two congreves who on the details being set before them declared this method of attack to be infallible and irresistible lord dundonald was pledged to secrecy by the prince regent and it was proposed to employ the device in the war still proceeding with france that proposal however was abandoned and another for the trial of the plan under sir alexander cochrane in north america in eighteen fourteen was prevented by the stock exchange trial after that the long peace enjoyed by england would have postponed the experiment even if lord dundonald had not been debarred from pursuit of his calling as an english naval officer he might have used his secret in chile brazil and greece but his promise to the prince regent and patriotic feelings that were even more cogent than that promise restrained him once used it would cease to be a secret and he resolved that the great advantage that would accrue from the first use should be reserved for his own country the project however was not forgotten by him soon after the ascension of king william the fourth he explained it to his majesty who acknowledged its value and paid a tribute to lord dundonald's honourable conduct in keeping his secret so long and under such strong inducements to an opposite course soon afterwards and during many years the prospect of another war induced him to engage in frequent correspondence on the subject with various members of the successive governments i long ago wrote the marquis of lansdowne then president of the council in may eighteen thirty four communicated the substance of the paper you left with me on the important objects which might be accomplished by the agency you describe in an attack upon an hostile marine to such of my colleagues as i then had an opportunity of seeing and more particularly to lord minto whom i found in some degree apprised of your views upon this subject as questions of such importance to the naval interests of the country can only be satisfactorily inquired into by the admiralty department of the government i should recommend you entering into an unreserved communication with him on the subject which i know he will receive with all the attention due to your high professional character and experience the earl of minto gave many proofs of his regard for lord dundonald but he was not disposed to think favourably of the secret war plan and it was kept in abeyance for four years more in the autumn of eighteen thirty four lord dundonald again pressed its consideration upon lord lansdowne alleging as a reason the warlike attitude of russia i am obliged to you for your letter wrote lord lansdowne in reply on the fifth of november and will certainly make use of the communication it contains in the proper quarter if the occasion arises which i sincerely hope it will not ambitious and encroaching as russia is seen and felt to be in all directions i am confident that her own true policy is to avoid giving just cause for war and that 
busily as she may use all indirect means towards her ends which she thinks she can justify she will yield to remonstrance when these limits are transgressed by her agents this is a course however which requires to be and i trust will be most carefully watched in that interesting letter lord lansdowne showed by his silence that he was not inclined to investigate the war plan and a like indifference was experienced by lord dundonald in his repeated efforts during the ensuing years to secure its acceptance by the government it was submitted to a favoured few and all to whom it was explained acknowledged its efficacy but no more than that was done its most competent critic was the duke of wellington who recognised the terrible power of the device although he objected to it on the score that two could play at that game if the people of france shall force their government to war with england wrote lord dundonald to lord minto on the third of august eighteen forty i hope you will do me the favour and justice to reflect on the nature of the opinion you received from the duke of wellington in regard to my plans which is the same as that given to the prince regent by lords keith and exmouth and the two congreves in the year eighteen eleven and that your lordship will perceive that although two can play at that game the one who first understands it can alone be successful in the event of war i beg to offer my endeavours to place the navy of france under your control or at once effectually to annihilate it were my plans known to the world i should not be accused of overrating their powers by the above otherwise extraordinary assertion lord minto's answer was very brief i shall bear your offer in mind but there is not the slightest chance of war for the same reason the secret plans were set aside by the earl of haddington who was first lord of the admiralty under lord minto he rendered considerable aid to lord Dundonald in testing his steam engine and boiler but considered the fact that england was at peace a sufficient reason for not discussing the value of a new instrument of war lord Dundonald, however who knew the value of his invention thought otherwise while vast sums of money were being spent at dover portsmouth and elsewhere upon fortifications and harbours of refuge for trading vessels which at war time could have no chance of safety against fighting steamships in the open sea he deemed it especially important that attention should be paid to a project calculated to effect an entire revolution in the principles and methods of warfare if his project was feasible it furnished an instrument by which fortifications and harbours of refuge would be rendered useless seeing that the most powerful enemy might by it be effectually prevented from coming within reach of those defences or if he was allowed to approach them could use it with terrible effect to which the most formidable defences could offer no resistance it was under this impression that on the twenty ninth of november eighteen forty five finding governments indifferent to his arguments he addressed a vigorous letter to the times had gunpowder and its adaptation to artillery he there said been discovered and perfected by an individual and had its wonderful power been privately tested indisputably proved and reported to a government or to a council of military men at the period when the battering-ram and crossbow were chief implements in war it is probable that the civilians would have treated the author as a wild visionary and that the professional council true to the spirit de corps would have spurned the supposed insult to their superior understanding science and the arts both of peace and war nevertheless in despite of all such retarding causes have advanced and probably will advance until effects and consequences accrue which the imagination can scarcely contemplate it is not however my intention to intrude observations of an ordinary nature but to endeavour to rectify an erroneous opinion which appears to prevail that consequences disastrous to this country may be anticipated from the introduction of steamships into maritime warfare 
I am desirous of showing that the use of steamships of war, though at present available by rival nations, need not necessarily diminish the security of our commerce, that still less need it necessarily endanger our national existence, which appears to be apprehended by those who allege the necessity of devoting millions of money to the defence of our coasts. I contend that there is nothing in the expected new system of naval warfare, through the employment of steam vessels, that can justify such expensive and derogatory precautions, because there are equally new and yet secret means of conquest which no devices hitherto used in maritime warfare could resist or evade. That the prejudice or incredulity which in all probability would have scouted the invention of gunpowder, if offered to notice under the circumstances above, supposed, may exist to a considerable extent in the present case, is extremely likely. Yet I do not the less advisedly affirm that with this all-powerful auxiliary, invasion may be rendered impossible, and our commerce secure by the speedy and effectual destruction of all assemblages of steamships, and, if necessary, of all the navies of the whole world, which, for ever after, might be prevented from inconveniently increasing. Away with the sinister forebodings which have originated the recent devices for protruding through the sterns of sluggish ships of war additional guns for defence in fight, away with the projected plans of protective forts and ports of cowardly refuge. Let the manly resolution be taken, when occasion shall require, vigorously to attack the enemy, instead of preparing elaborate means of defence. Factitious ports on the margin of the channel cannot be better protected than those which exist, respecting which I pledge any professional credit I may possess, that whatever hostile force might therein be assembled could be destroyed within the first twenty-four hours favourable for effective operations in defiance of forts and batteries, mounted with the most powerful ordnance now in use. In the capacity of an officer, all hope seemed to be precluded that in time of peace I could render service to my country. A new light, however, has beamed through the cloud, for in the pursuit of my vocation as an amateur engineer it has become apparent that a plan which I deemed available only in war, may contribute to prevent the naval department from being paralysed by a wasteful perversion of its legitimate support. Protective harbours, save as screens from wind and sea, may be likened to nets wherein fishers seeking to escape find themselves inextricably entangled, or to the guardian care of a shepherd who should pen his flock in a fold to secure it from a marching army. No effective protection could be afforded in such ports, against a superior naval force equipped for purpose of destruction, whilst their utility as places of refuge from steam privateers is quite disproportioned to their cost. Privateers could neither tow off merchant vessels from our shore, nor regain their own if appropriate measures shall be adopted to intercept them. Impressions in favour of so expensive, so despondent, and so inadequate a scheme can have no better origin than specious reports emanating from delusive opinions derived from a very limited knowledge of facts. The hasty adoption of such measures and the voting away the vast sums required to carry them into execution are evils seriously to be deprecated. It is therefore greatly to be desired that those in power should pause before proceeding further in such a course. It behooves them to consider, in all its bearings and in all its consequences, the contemplated system of stationary maritime defence subject as that system may become to the overwhelming influence of the secret plan which I placed in their hands, similar to that which I presented in 1812 to His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, who referred its consideration confidentially to Lord Keith, Lord Exmouth, and the two Congreves, professional and scientific men, by whom it was pronounced to be infallible, under the circumstances detailed in my explanatory statement. 
Thirty-three years is a long time to retain an important secret, especially as I could have used it with effect in defence of my character when cruelly assailed, as I have shown at length in a representation to the government, and could have practically employed it on various occasions to my private advantage. I have now, however, determined to solicit its well-merited consideration in the hope, privately if possible, to prove the comparative inexpedience of an expenditure of some twelve million pounds, or twenty million pounds sterling, for the construction of forts and harbours, instead of applying ample funds at once to remodel and renovate the navy, professionally known to be susceptible to immense improvement, including the removal from its swollen bulk of much that is cumbrous and prejudicial. However injudicious it might be thought to divulge my plan, at least until energetically put in execution for an adequate object, yet if its disclosure is indispensable to enable a just and general estimate to be formed of the merits of the mongrel terraqueous scheme of defence now in contemplation, as compared with the mighty power and protective ubiquity of the floating bulwarks of Britain, I am satisfied that the balance would be greatly in favour of publicity." It would demonstrate that there could be no security in those defences and those asylums, on the construction of which it is proposed to expend so many millions of the public money. It might, therefore, have the effect of preventing such useless expenditure, and of averting the obviously impending danger of future parsimonious naval administration, abandonment of essential measures of nautical improvement, and the national disgrace of maritime degradation, all inseparable from an unnatural hermaphrodite union between a distinguished service— which might still further be immeasurably exalted, and the most extravagant, derogatory, inefficient, and preposterous project that could be devised for the security and protection of an insular, widely extended colonial and commercial state. End quote. Readers note letter ends. A few months after that letter had been written, Lord Dundonald's hopes that his secret plans would be accepted by the government were revived. In 1846, his friend Lord Auckland took office as First Lord of the Admiralty, and by him, with very little delay, it was proposed to submit the plans to the judgment of a competent committee of officers. This was all that Lord Dundonald had asked for, and he gladly accepted the proposal. The officers chosen were Sir Thomas Hastings, then Surveyor-General of the Ordnance, Sir J. F. Burgoyne, and Lieutenant-Colonel J. S. Calhoun. By them the project was carefully considered, and on the 16th of January, 1847, they tendered their official report upon it. These plans, it was there said, may be classed under three heads. First, one, on which an opinion may be formed with experiment for concealing or making offensive warlike operations, and we consider that, under many particular circumstances, the method of his lordship may be made available as well by land as by sea, and we therefore suggest that a record of this part of Lord Dundonald's plans should be deposited with the Admiralty to be made use of when, in the judgment of their lordships, the opportunity for employing it may occur. Second, one on which experiments would be required before a satisfactory conclusion could be arrived at. Third, numbers one and two combined for the purpose of hostile operations. After mature consideration, we have resolved that it is not desirable that any experiment should be made. We assume it to be possible that the plan number two contains power for producing the sweeping destruction the inventor ascribes to it, but it is clear this power could not be retained exclusively by this country because its first employment would develop both its principle and application. We considered, in the next place, how far the adoption of the proposed secret plans would accord with the feelings and principles of civilised warfare. We are of unanimous opinion that plans two and three would not be so. We therefore recommend that, as hitherto plans two and three 
should remain concealed. We feel that great credit is due to Lord Dundonald for the right feeling which prompted him not to disclose his secret plans when serving in war as naval commander-in-chief of the forces of other nations, and under many trying circumstances, in the conviction that those plans might eventually be of the highest importance to his own country. End quote. That report was in the main highly gratifying to Lord Dundonald. It recognised the efficacy of his plans and recommended their partial use at any rate in time of need. Permit me to express as far as I am able, he wrote to Lord Auckland on the 27th of January, my deep sense of obligation to your lordship in causing my plans of war to be thoroughly investigated by the most competent authorities and for the extremely kind terms in which you have informed me of the satisfactory result. With regard to their disposal, I submit that it would be advisable to retain them inviolate until the period shall arrive, when the use of them may be deemed beneficial to the interests of the country. I have to observe, as to the opinions of the Commission, that plans numbers two and three would not accord with the principles and feeling of civilised warfare, that the new method resorted to by the French, of firing horizontal shells and carcasses, is stated by a commission of scientific and practical men, appointed by the French government, to ascertain their effects, to be so formidable that it would render impossible the success of any enterprise attempted against their vessels in harbour, and that, for the defence of roadsteads, or for the attack of line-of-battle ships, becalmed or embayed, its effect would be infallible, namely, by blowing up or burning our ships, to the probable destruction of the lives of all their crews, I submit that, against such batteries as these, the adoption of my plans numbers two and three would be perfectly justifiable. Readers note letter ends. That the French, not yet forgetful of the injuries inflicted on them in the last great war, and in the frequent wars of previous centuries, were still hoping and planning for an opportunity of retaliation, and that their plans needed to be carefully watched and counteracted, were convictions strongly impressed upon Lord Dundonald in those years, and in 1848 he had a singular verification of them. I enclose a paper of some consequence, wrote Lord Auckland to him on the 30th of June. It contains the plan which, in contemplation of war, has been submitted to the French provisional government for naval operations. It is perhaps little more than the pamphlet of the Prince de Joinville, carried out methodically and in detail, and the writer seems to me to anticipate a far more exclusive playing of the game only on one side than we should allow to be the case. But nevertheless, such a mode of warfare would be embarrassing and mischievous, and I should like to have from you your views of a counter-project to it and your criticisms upon it. Readers note letter ends. The report forwarded to Lord Dundonald by Lord Auckland, entitled La Poissance Maritime de la France, and designed to show that un guer maritime est plus redateur pour Angleterre que pour la France, besides effecting curious confirmation of Lord Dundonald's opinions, is a document very memorable in itself. Its main idea was that in naval warfare victory is obtained not by mere numbers, but by superiority in ships and guns. In the present condition of our marine, said its author, we must give up fleet fighting. The English can arm more fleets than we can, and we cannot maintain a war of fleets with England without exposing ourselves to losses as great as those we experienced under the First Empire. Though during twenty years, however, our warfare, as carried on by fleets, was disastrous, that of our cruisers was nearly always successful. By again sending these forth with instructions not to compromise themselves with an enemy superior to them in numbers, we shall inflict great loss on English commerce. To attack the commerce is to attack the vital principle of England, to strike to her heart. It is note quote ends. 
that was the view advanced under louis philippe's reign by the prince de joinville but it was much more elaborately worked out by the advocate of naval energy in days immediately preceding prince louis napoleon's ascension to power what i propose he said is a war founded on this principle of striking at english commerce in a naval war between two nations one of which has a very large commerce and the other very little military forces are of small consequence in the end peace must become a necessity to the power which has much to lose and little to gain let us see what took place in america during the disputes on the oregon question despite the immense superiority of the english navy the americans maintained their pretensions england found out that well-equipped frigates and countless privateers were sufficient to carry on a war against her commerce in all parts of the globe whilst all the damage she could do to america was the destruction of a few coast towns by which she could gain neither honour nor profit and so she decided to preserve peace by yielding the question it is this american system that we in france must adopt renouncing the glory of fleet victories we must make active war on the commercial shipping of great britain if america and her small means could gain such an advantage over england what results may we not expect to obtain with a hundred and fifty ships of war and three hundred corsairs armed with long-range guns it is not quote ends the report recommended that the naval force of france should be organized into twenty corsair divisions these were to have cherbourg for their headquarters one to look after the merchant shipping in the british channel another to watch the mouth of the thames and a third to cruise along the dutch and german coasts so as to intercept our baltic trade and all these were to be aided by a line of telegraphs from brest to dunkirk in correspondence with the line of scouts ranged along the french coast with orders to communicate to the central station at cherbourg every movement of british merchantmen three similar divisions were to be formed at brest charged respectively with the oversight of the east and west indian shipping as it passed cape clear of the azores and of the irish coast a seventh division stationed at rockfort was to watch for a favourable opportunity of cooperating with the other six and if desirable in transporting an army to ireland an eighth division was to watch the neighbourhood of gibraltar and four others were to be stationed in various parts of the mediterranean three other divisions were to cruise along the north american coast to harass our commerce with the united states to intercept the trade of canada and the neighbouring colonies and in springtime to capture the produce of the newfoundland fisheries three smaller divisions were to be charged with the annoyance of our west indian islands and the destruction of their commerce and the remaining two were to scour the coasts of south america a separate and formidable establishment of screw frigates was to have for its headquarters a port of refuge to be constructed in madagascar whose operations were to be directed in all quarters against our east indian possessions and their extensive trade in addition to these means it was further said in the report the departmental councils should each arm one steam frigate commanded by an officer of the navy born in the department the prizes captured by each should in this case be at the disposal of the departmental councils a portion being devoted to defraying the expenses of the vessel and the remainder applied to the execution of public works within the department as regards the defence of french ports this may best be effected by flat-bottomed hulks armed with long-range guns adapted to horizontal firing the chances against invasion are greatly in favour of france on account of the superiority of her land force and the facility of transporting troops by railway to the locality attacked a great point will be the perfect training of the french squadron by annual evolutions and with double or treble the requisite number of officers if these suggestions are carried out france will establish at sea what russia has done on land to the injury and restriction of british commerce 
which must be seriously damaged, without material harm being done, to ourselves. This loss of commerce will especially affect the working classes of England, and thus bring about a democratic inundation, which will compel her to a speedy submission. Those were the chief proposals of the secret memoir, which, falling into the hands of the British government, so far alarmed it as to lead it to call upon the Earl of Dundonald for his opinions as to the best way of meeting the threatened danger. This document, he wrote in his reply to Lord Auckland, describes a plan of maritime operations undoubtedly more injurious to the interests of England than that pursued by France in former wars. There is nothing new, however, in the opinions promulgated. They have long been familiar to British naval officers, whose wonder has been that the widespread colonial commerce of England has never yet been effectually assailed. It is true that the advice given in the memoir derives more importance now from the fact that the application of steam power to a system of predatory warfare constitutes at every harbour a port of naval equipment requiring to be watched, not in the passive manner of former blockades, but effectively by steam vessels having their fires kindled at least during the obscurity of night. The cost and number of such blockades need not be dwelt on, nor the indefinite period to which prudence on the part of an enemy and vigilance on that of the blockading force might prolong a war. One hundred million sterling added to our national debt would solve a doubt whether the most successful depredations on British commerce could produce consequences more extensive and permanently injurious. The memoir obviously anticipates that le usage de canons bombs, doubtless attenez en aussi prodigi effet, will prevent our blockading ships from approaching the shores of France, and thus their steam vessels might escape unobserved during night, even with sailing vessels in tow. This is no vague conjecture, but a consequence which assuredly will follow any hesitation on our part to counteract the system extensively adopted, and now under the consideration of the National Assembly of arming all batteries with projectiles whereby to burn or blow up our ships of war, a fate which even the precaution of keeping out of range could not avert by reason of the incendiary and explosive missiles whereby les petits bâtiments at vapour pour un atroquois les plus gros vassaux. It is impossible to retaliate by using similar weapons. Forts and batteries are incombustible. Recourse must therefore be had to other means whereby to overcome fortifications, protecting expeditionary forces and piratical equipments. Letter N. The means recommended by Lord Dundonald, it need hardly be said, were the secret war plans which he had developed nearly forty years before, and the efficacy of which had recently been again admitted by the committee appointed to investigate them in 1846. It is not allowable, of course, to quote the paragraphs in which Lord Dundonald once more explained them and urged their adoption in case of need. The only objection offered to them was that they were too terrible for use by a civilised community. These means, he replied, all powerful, are nevertheless humane when contrasted with the use of shells and carcasses by ships at sea, and most merciful as competent to avert the bloodshed that would attend the contemplated descent en Angleterre on an island and other hostile schemes recommended in the memoir. That letter was forwarded to Lord Auckland from Halifax, where Lord Dundonald then was, in the beginning of August. Assuredly, the reasons which you give for the use of the means suggested are such as it is difficult to controvert, wrote Lord Auckland on the 18th, but I would at least defer my assent to dissent to the time when the question may be more pressing than it is at present. I would postpone my own reflections on the secret plans, he wrote again on the 1st of September, and would fain hope that events will allow this government long to postpone all decision upon them. I agree with you, however, in much that you say upon their principle, 
and am well satisfied that to no hands better than yours could the execution of any vigorous plans be entrusted. Reader's note later ends. When, however, as will be seen on a latter page, an opportunity did arise for the enforcing those plans against another power than France, their execution was not permitted to Lord Dundonald. Strongly as he himself was impressed by their importance, they formed only a part of a complete system of opinions respecting the defence of England at which he arrived by close study and long experience. These have already been partly indicated. He did not wish that his plans should be lightly made use of, but believing that they would ultimately become a recognised means of warfare, and that even without them a great revolution would soon take place in ways of fighting, he deprecated as useless and wasteful the elaborate fortifications which were, in his time, beginning to be extensively set up at Dover, Portsmouth, and other possible points of attack upon England, and urged with no less energy that vast improvements ought to be made in the construction and employment of ships of war. Fortifications, he considered, were only desirable for the protection of the special ports and depots around which they were set up, and even for that purpose they ought to be so compact as to need no more than a few troops and local garrisons for their occupation. To have them so complicated and numerous as to require the exclusive attention of all or nearly all the military force of England appeared to him only a source of national weakness. His own achievements at Valdivia and elsewhere showed him that skilful seamanship on the part of an invader would render them much less sufficient for the defence of the country than was generally supposed. If all our soldiers were scattered along various points on the coast, it would not be difficult for the enemy, by a bold and sudden onslaught, or still more by a feint of the sort in which he himself was master, to take possession of one, and then there would be no concentrated army available, to prevent the onward march of the assailant. Much wiser would it be to leave the seaboard comparatively unprotected from the land, and to have a powerful army so arranged as to be ready for prompt resistance to the enemy, if, by any means, he had gained a footing on the shore. To prevent that footing being gained, however, Lord Dundonald was quite as eager as any champion of monster fortifications could be, but this prevention, he urged, must be by means of movable ships, and not by movable landworks. A strong fleet of gunboats stationed all along the coast and with carefully devised arrangements for mutual communication so that at any time their force could be speedily concentrated in one or more important positions would be far more efficacious and far more economical than the more popular expedients for the military defence of England. He heartily believed, in fact, in the old and often proved maxim that the sea was England's wall and he desired to have that wall guarded by a force able to watch its whole extent and to pass it from one point to another as occasion required. Desiring that thus the coast should be immediately protected by efficient gunboats, he desired no less to augment the naval strength of the country by means of improved warships, as much like gunboats as possible. To large ships, if constructed in moderation and applied to special purposes, he was not averse. But he set a far higher value upon small and well-armed vessels, able to pass rapidly from place to place and to navigate shallow seas. Give me, he often said, a fast small steamer with a heavy long-range gun in the bow and another in the hold to fall back upon and i would not hesitate to attack the larger ship afloat his opinion on this point also was confirmed by his own experience most notably in the exploits of his little speedy in the mediterranean and by the whole history of english naval triumphs since the time when the so-called invincible armada of spain into the British Channel, designed to conquer England by means of its huge armaments, and when the bulky galleons and gallusses of Philip's haughty sailors were chased and worried by the smaller barks and pinnacles of Drake, Hawkins, Frobisher, and the other sea captains of Elizabeth, 
who sailed round and round their foe and darted in and out of his unwieldy mass of shipping never failing to inflict great injury while his volleys of artillery passed harmlessly over their decks to sink into the sea there had been abundant proof of the constant superiority of small warships over large a mosquito fleet as he called it was what lord dundonald wished to see developed a swarm of active little vessels just large enough to carry one or two powerful guns which would go anywhere and do anything to which the larger crafts of the enemy would afford convenient targets but which small and nimble would be much less likely to be themselves attacked and even if attacked and sunk would entail far less loss than would ensue from the destruction of a huge warship as large a gun as possible in a vessel as small and swift as possible and as many of them as you can put upon the sea was lord dundonald's ideal for this he argued during half a century for this he laboured hard and long in the exercise of his inventive powers in eighteen twenty six the plan of the war steamers which he was to have taken to greece was explained to lord exmouth no slight authority on naval matters why it's not only the turkish fleet exclaimed the veteran but all the navies in the world that you will be able to conquer with such craft as these End, End of chapter twenty five recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia